Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host, Jim Thompson. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Carl Potts. Carl has many titles to his name, as well as professor, editor, inker, layout artist. He worked uh, in the early 70s with uh, Neil Adams in continuity, and then also went on to Marvel and other projects. Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right. So, Carl, I always like to start at the very beginning. And I know you were born in uh, the early 50s and uh, in Oakland, California. I had read that you'd, you were raised in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, but also in Hawaii. Can you kind of break down when you were at different places? Yeah, I was born, uh, I was a Navy brat. I was born in Oakland Old Naval Hospital in the Oakland Hills and uh, lived in various places around the East Bay Area until I was I believe it was. And my dad was stationed on Oahu in Honolulu. And so we lived for two and a half years in Navy housing in Honolulu. So I went to kindergarten and first grade at Nimitz Elementary School in Honolulu, ah. which recently, on a recent trip to Hawaii, I visited is still open, still there, still operating. It's the only school I went to from elementary through high school that is still open and operating. It's, it's uh, very strange, but the first one I went to is the only one still standing. And then uh, after that, we moved back to the Bay Area and pretty much stayed there for most of my life until I moved to New York. We did have one short six-month stint in San Diego when I was in second grade. My dad was posted down there for a short time. Then we came and, back to the Bay Area. And what did he do in the Navy? He was in the Navy? Yeah, he was a 20-year man. He was a chief of damage control, which means that uh, you know if there was any ship damage, including battle damage during—he was in World War II— that deal with that, but often that also meant that they were the master carpenters. So he was an amazing carpenter. Uh, uh, but he was on a seaplane tender, a PBUI uh, seaplane tender. So they would often have to rendezvous with seaplanes that were out of fuel or damaged in the middle of the ocean and uh, go out there and try and get them up in the air again. Yeah, my dad was on the Santa Fe and I think the Wasp during the war as well. Hmm. So, so I I know all those stories. <laughs> Tell a little bit about your upbringing and your, your you know, I, you said your dad's in the Navy, but what, what else can you tell us? Well, my father and my mother met shortly after World War II in the Bay Area. My mother and her whole family had been prisoners of the Japanese in the Philippines during the war for over three years. And even though my maternal grandmother, her mother, was Japanese, born and raised, she had married an American and considered herself an American from that point on. So they... Mm. They were in the Philippines when the Japanese took over, and they took all of the Allied civilians and put them in prison camps. The biggest one was Santa Tomas University campus, so it was this big square city block with big walls around it that was in the heart of Manila. And at first, they didn't want to. They hated my grandmother for marrying the enemy. But they weren't going to put her, a Japanese woman, civilian, in the prison camp. But she was a tough lady. I didn't realize when I was growing up, she was just grandma to me, but she worked her way up the chain of command to the general in charge of Manila and convinced him she was an American by choice. And he finally relented and wrote her a pass to get into the prison camp to be with her husband and her children. And as far as I know, she's the only Japanese civilian voluntarily imprisoned by the Japanese during the war, at least in the Philippines. But they were in there for over three years being progressively starved. And, you know, occasionally the Kempai Tai, the secret police would come in and haul people out and they'd never be seen again. It was really brutal stuff. And um, when MacArthur came back, he sent uh, a force called the Flying Column uh, 100 miles behind Japanese lines to get into Manila and free those prisoners. And if they hadn't been successful, I wouldn't exist because my mother was in that camp. So that's actually... um, Part of a giant World War II graphic novel I'm currently working on that will be published by the Naval Institute Press called The Flying Column that I I wrote. And I originally started doing layouts for, and Bill Reinhold was going to do all the finished art on. But it turned out that I was just not producing the layouts fast enough, so Bill took over, and he's doing all the art on them. And he's doing it in ink wash that we then turn into sepia tone, so we'll have that 1940s look. Oh, that's, that's exciting. But after the war, uh, they, they, or while the war is still going on, my grandfather, who was from Alabama, took his Japanese wife and all his half-Japanese children to his family in Alabama while the war is still going on. So my poor younger uncle got in fights every day in high school for the rest of the year for about, for about a month because uh, all the bullies there would jump. Unfortunately, he'd been uh, taking boxing lessons in Manila. But my mother and some of her sisters and eventually most of the rest of the family moved to the Bay Area and 
there's where she met my father, and they decided to get married. And back then, even uh, right after the war, there were still these laws that uh, if you were half Japanese or more, you couldn't marry a Caucasian person Mm. in California. So they had to drive up to Washington State where the laws were different in order to get married. And then he got posted around. He was in uh, Guam where my sister was born and then back to the Bay Area where I was born and we took off from there. But after we moved back from Hawaii, we were basically in San Leandro, California, which is below Oakland and above Hayward. And I pretty much grew up there until I was about 21 or two. And I decided I was going to move to New York and become a comic book artist uh, very naively. I'd never even, even in college, I it was close enough that I didn't even move out of the home. So I'd never lived on my own. And in the Bay Area at that time, we're living some professional comic book people who had got tired of New York and decided to move to a beautiful Bay Area, including Jim Starlin and Alan Weiss and Frank Brenner. And particularly Weiss and Starlin were very, very nice to me and always invited me over when I had new art samples to show to give me critiques. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Starlin got assigned to do basically over a four-day weekend, I draw a whole issue of Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter for Denny O'Neill, who was editing it at DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, they needed it in a rush. And so he pulled me in to help on some backgrounds and background characters. And Alan Weiss helped him pencil the, the main stuff. And well, Alan Milgram made the whole thing to try and make it look somewhat uniform. But Lord knows Milgram had a, his hands full with my stuff back then, <laughs> trying to make that come up to the standards. But anyhow, so when I told Starlin I was going to move to... Uh, New York, he asked me if I knew anybody out there. And I said, no, I did not. And he said, hmm, I'm going to make a call. So he ended up calling Al Milgram and Walt Simonson, who shared an apartment in Forest Hills, Queens, and said, um, I'm gonna, you know, if this kid comes out here, out there, uh, would you guys uh, be willing to put him up while he gets his feet under him? They said, mm-hmm. sure. They never met me. They had no idea who I was. They just took Starlin's word that, uh, you know, I was a decent folk. And mm-hmm. So I flew out there and arrived on a red eye and made it to the apartment building in the late morning. And I didn't realize those guys kept nocturnal hours. So I actually woke them up at around 11 in the morning. (laughs) And it turned out that, you know, not only was I kind of starstruck, you know, suddenly hanging out with Simonson and Milgram, but that living in that same building were Bernie Wrightson and Howard Chaikin. And they're always palling around all day long. That's great. And I was just like, you know, I, I didn't know what the hell to do. <laughs> I was just flabbergasted. I was suddenly in the mix of with all these people. And, and this Starlin, was in 1974, right? Five, summer 75. 75. Okay. And if, if you recall your history, that is right when Atlas collapsed. So all the people who had been gone yep. to Atlas to work were rushing back to Marvel and DC to try and pick up work. So that was like the worst possible time to try and break into the business. Uh, now, and, before th- before that, though, you had made some other contacts and including meeting Neil Adams when you were still in California, right? In 73 at your yeah. first San Diego Comic-Con. Talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, I drove my Pinto hatchback from the barrier down to San Diego. And then the convention was being held at a motel near the airport. That's how what, far long ago this thing was. Hmm. And uh, the the major guests there that year were Neil, Jack Kirby, and Carmine Infantino. Mm. And I had a portfolio of, you know, kind of really, really lame art. Most, and not even any continuity stuff. It was mostly typical mistake for, you know, fans trying to show their work. It was uh, pinup type stuff. Mm. And I worked up the nerve to show it to Neil. Neil looked at it and said, handed it back to me, said, it's not even worth commenting on it, turned around to walk away. And I don't know how I worked up the nerve, but I, I, and I just say, well, could you at least tell me what to work on? So he turned around for a minute and he proceeded to name every aspect of drawing and composition and storytelling and, you know, layout, everything and anatomy, all the, everything and said, you know, if you worked real hard for 18 months, I might be willing to look at it again. So when I got to New York, I took him up on his offer a little bit later, but first uh, Starlin would go back to New York once in a while to you know, arrange for his next batch of projects or whatever. So he kindly timed one of his visits with my visit back there. So my second day in New York, he took me up to the Marvel offices, which were the ones on Madison Avenue at that point. And, you know, introduced me around and I got to show my work. And I sold my first piece to Archie Goodwin, of all people, who was editing the black and white 
magazines at the time. And for, for Marvel. Yeah, and there was a science fiction magazine that uh, he had that he wanted to get a piece of art for the subscription ad. So he bought my pencils for something and then Simonson inked that. So my first professional job selling something, I get Walt Simonson ink in it. And nice. Archie got a good one buying it. That, you know, my you know my head was on, you know, in the clouds. That was your first professional at Marvel, but you had done a lot of some fanzine work before that, including the um, the one that you did with. I think you met these guys at the same convention that you met Adams, right? The uh, the venture people, yeah, uh, who are very important in your career. I mean, they come up yeah, periodically. Again yeah, yeah. At that convention, I made connections with other artists. Ironically, I had to go to San Diego to meet a bunch of other artists from the Bay Area who I didn't even know, who were also into comics and trying to break in. And that included Steve Lealoa and Al Gordon, and then Frank Sirocco, Gary Winnick, and Brent Anderson, who were all from the San Jose area in the South Bay. And so that was, that's my initial connection with uh, all those folks. And like up until that point, I was in total ignorance that you know, there were a lot of other people in a similar situation and mindset as I was living near me. So uh, tell us a little bit about Venture. Venture was um, basically Frank Sirocco and Gary Winnick's fanzine. And they were also good friends with uh, Brent Anderson. So he always had work in there as well. I did just a little bit of work for them. But when they heard I was going to move to New York and try and you know break into the mainstream comics, they kind of used me to try and help tease uh, Neil Adams to do a cover for them, which was, you know, kind of, uh, I think the fact that they got that cover out of Adams with me kind of tickling the subject matter from the inside there at Continuity, I ended up getting that original art for a while, but then uh, Gary Winnicka was so, you know, proud of that piece because it had Neil Adams drawing a character he created that I ended up giving it back to him. Let's see where I was going. I'm, 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 and Sirocco and, and uh, Winnick actually ended up, did you get them, help get them jobs at Continuity at some point? Yeah, a bit. Uh, they came out and uh, decided they were going to, the year after I got out there and I got established at Continuity, they decided they were going to try and do the same thing. So I introduced them around and Neil and Dick Giordano liked them enough to, you know, have them work up there for a while. And then a year or two, Brent Anderson came out with them too, but Brent, I think, was more freelancing as opposed to just, you know, working up at Continuity, but he was there a lot. Then they all went back to California for a little while. And then a year or so later, Brent Anderson came back out, this time accompanied by Joe Chido. And Tony Sammons, I believe, too, came out somewhere along the way. Oh, okay. Um, oh, because he, uh, he did some he did some work for uh, Venture, too. Yeah, I know I he, so. he, inked, he inked something. Um, yeah. I remember. So um, Tony, I think, was not from the Bay Area, though. I think he was like from Arizona or, or somewhere still out west, but not the Bay Area. But anyhow, before I, I got to continuity, um, when Starlin was still showing me around the Marvel offices, he took me into the British reprint department where the editor was busy chopping all the 22-page stories in half for the British weekly market, and they needed new splash pages for the second halves. And so they'd often give the new people a shot there. And I ended up going out of there with a handful of assignments for new splash pages for the, the British reprints. And That's right, because Tom Orzachowski got, that's where he started uh, mm. over at Marvel, too, I think, as I remember. And, uh, I, who, I, and you knew him as well, right? He was one of the uh, people. Yeah, in the Bay Area, there was uh, late, in addition to Weiss, Starlin, and Renner, Steve Englehart moved out there, and Orzachowski was there. And for a while, a lot of them had this uh, house they were renting all together in, in the Berkeley Hills, which was really nice. But I'm not sure if there was anybody else that moved out there or not from, from back east. Now, were you, you had started, you'd become interested in comics going back to early days. You were interested in comics, and I had read somewhere that you had really started with DC War titles. That those were ones that were kind of your first love. Is that, was that accurate? Well, I'd been reading comics before then, just about anything I could get, get my hands on, I'd read. And then, you know, if I was homesick from, you know, elementary school, my mom, if she went to the drugstore, would, you know, go to the spinner rack and grab a handful of things, usually stuff I wouldn't normally have bought for myself, like Lucille Ball comics and, you know, <laughs> no, well. things like that. But occasionally she'd get to me, but I'd read them all. I just love the form and, and visual storytelling. But 
when I started uh, mowing lawn and getting my own money, yeah, I'd go down and uh, usually it would be DC war titles. They, um, you know, the art, that's when, you know, the differences in the art started really jumping out at me and looking at people like Kurt Kubert and Irv Novick and Russ Heath, you know, the art just looks so amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And, and then you, when you grew, then you ended up sharing, you were in the same space as, as Russ Heath when you went to continuity, right? Yeah. He was like right yeah. behind you? Yeah, Russ was sitting at the table uh, behind mine in the um, the main front room at continuity. And did you, did you meet, did you work with Schubert at all? I met him a few times. The only time I really worked with him at all is uh, later on when I was executive editor at Marvel or at that point, that was that silly period when they had five of us being simultaneous editors in chief and he was doing new new tour a new abraham stone work for epic and so i worked with him a little bit on that and irv novick i don't believe i ever met but i when i used to go to the the my father's px in alameda i'd buy comics there too and one day i went in there and the first marvel i ever really saw was sergeant fury number one mm. And it was sitting on the racks there, and it just looked so different than any other war book I'd seen. So I picked it up and took it home, and I read it. And I thought I did not care for Kirby's rendering style at all. But every day, I kept pulling that thing out of the drawer and rereading it. And it wasn't until years later I realized that it was a combination of the dynamics and Kirby's storytelling. But, you know, Stan's kind of, you know, bombastic uh, dialogue that really drew me in. And I saw house ads in there for all the other Marvel titles. So I started picking them up. And before long, I was just buying Marvel stuff. I, I didn't buy any DC stuff for quite a while. I think until uh, Ditko went over there and started The Creeper. I don't think I... Because um, you, you were there. You, were, you would have been about 12 or so when Marvel was really kicking in with the Marvel yeah. Age of Comics. And I had read that Ditko's one of your uh, favorites of that period. Yeah, he uh, his work on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange just blew me away. I just, you know, I was much more of a Ditko person than a Kirby person, although I liked them both and appreciated them both. But Ditko, the you know, the fact that he made Spider-Man just like come to life with all these, you know, strange body language positions and actions and creating whole new worlds with Doctor Strange. And I was just fascinated with uh, what he was able to do. Yeah, he's he's my favorite too. That those two Spider-Man annuals, what just give you everything you need to know in terms of body and, but also the the dimensions and things with yeah. the Doctor Strange crossover. I I love that stuff. Yeah, more, than, more than Kirby. The annual, the second annual is one of my all-time favorite comics. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mine as well. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I just thought we'd get one thing out before I forget that, that when Starlin because I. Starlin's got, as you can tell, major, you know, brownie points uh, in, his, in my mind, because in addition to after taking me up to Marvel and introducing me to Goodwin and others in this British region print department, when I got those assignments, I didn't find out until a couple of years later that that the only reason I got those British reprint assignments is that the editor took Starlin aside out of my earshot and said, I'll give this kid some work if you do a cover for me. Starlin did that and he never told me. I had to find out from Milgram a few years oh, later. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, That's cool. Um, so he, he was he was looking out for you. Yeah, he's 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 got you know major gold stars next to his name in my book. Oh, that's awesome. So, how did you start work at Neil Adams Continuity Studios in in '75? Did he remember you from the San Diego Comic Con a couple years earlier? Uh, tell us about that. Ended up calling up Continuity soon after I arrived in New York and reminded whoever picked up the phone, who I assume was Pat Bastian, who was usually doing that at that time. And told him that, you know, Neil had told me two years before that if I worked real hard for 18 months, he'd be willing to look at my work again. So I was in town. I was wondering if I could come up and show my work again. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, she checked with Neil. She said, you know, come on by. And that's what I did. And I was very nervous. And this time I actually had continuity type samples in there, you know, sequential visual storytelling. Oh, cool. Uh, as opposed to pinups. I'd learned that lesson really well. And mm -hmm. um, they were just gearing up then to start packaging these large black and white magazine comics for Charlton that were based on TV shows, Six Million Dollar Man, Emergency in Space, 1999. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for some young guys to come in and pencil them under uh, Neil and Dick's, you know, tutelage. And then that way they could afford to package these things and, and get them to Charlton. 
Mm. And so they asked me to, to be one of those people. And, and the, the only empty desk at that time was at the left hand of Neil. So I ended up working next to Neil for three years. Oh, cool. Uh, but it was very daunting and intimidating. There wasn't a lot of like hands-on lessons. It was more like I would take whatever I did originally and see how it evolved through all the, the process and what came out at the end and see what changes were made and figure out why. And that's how most of my lessons were learned up there. But Neil would have us all do these really tiny thumbnails. You'd take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, fold it into quarters, and then each quarter was a thumbnail for a full page. So it was very small. Mm. And then he'd look at them and with his flare pen, he would either strengthen the drawing or in some cases, he would just ignore what you'd drawn and draw something else without penciling it just with a flare pen. Mm. And then uh, he had one room in the back that had two large old autographs, which are artographs, which are um, fancy opaque projectors that project straight down onto a desk and you can adjust them for the size of the magnification and, and the focus. And we would take those tiny thumbnails, blow them up on the full-size artboard and trace off the basic shapes and then take those and do the, the finished pencils from them. Oh, okay. And so then, those thumbnails kind of acted as a layout in a way. Yeah. And then with Neil approved the pencils, then they went to Dick Giordano, who would farm either, he would often do a lot of the major you know, characters and faces and so on. And he'd on have the inking the, stage? Yeah. And occasionally, though, other people would come in, like, I have stuff that on those pages that Russ, he think that he was available to do some making work. So they would have him do some of the major characters, too. Other people would come by. Vincente Alcazar would come by and visit once in a while. And he'd be thinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, Nick, Neil's, uh, excuse me, Dick's assistants at the time were Bob Wyacek and Terry Austin. So mm-hmm. they were doing a lot of the backgrounds and background figures. And, was was mm-hmm. Joseph Rubenstein there, too, at that point? Uh, I think he was just, uh, that was early in his stages there as like a high school intern or something like that. Right. That's, That's what right. it was. Yeah. 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 And, and then a little later on, Dennis Cowan was doing the same thing. He was there a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another guy named uh, Joe Desposito. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he's a, he's a very good painter. He was there. But so anyhow, by the time, you know, Neil, Dick, Russ, Terry, Bob got through with my pages, they look fabulous. <laughs> at least, right, uh, right, 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 right. At least After uh, all the it, you know, whistles, based yeah. on what they, you know, they were originally given. So that's how I learned a lot uh, by looking at how that whole process worked. That's but kind of a into, cool, almost like a conveyor belt, but a very creative one. Yeah. And then, you know, at times just, you know, people would come to visit from out of town for a while, hang out in the studio. And if it looked like they were twiddling their thumbs too much, and Neil or Dick would say, hey, you want to do some of this or that? And You'd have other people, you know, inking your stuff and you'd see neat, interesting takes on the final art of, based on what you'd given them. And uh, mm-hmm. it was a great way to see how different artists approach things and get you out of your default ruts on how you approach drawing or rendering things. Right. So tell the audience, what exactly is the Krusty Bunkers? That is a name for a, a loose amalgam of creative talent that... Basically, whoever happened to be at Continuity Studios when Continuity needed to get something inked quickly for a client. So mostly it was Dick Giordano and Neil Adams, but often Russ Heath, who was there too. Occasionally Jack Abel, who rented space up there. And then also renting space further back along the row were obviously Terry Austin and Bob Wycheck, but you had mm-hmm. Larry Hama and Ralph Reese. And oh, there cool. were other other people that would come and go all the time. You know, Alan Weiss ended up moving back to New York. So he was part of the Krusty Bunkers before he moved out of New York. And then after he moved back, it just evolved constantly. It was evolved. There was a guy who did very little in the comics business, but was very, very talented named Ed Davis, who did a little bit of Krusty Bunkers work as well. Mm. So continuity kind of functioned as a, as a shop, kind of like the, the 40s shops, like the Iger and Eisner shop. And continuity was basically like that in the 70s. Is that correct? I guess in a way, although it was also kind of like a social crossroads, it was like the neutral ground between Marvel and DC and places people could just come and hang out and shoot the breeze or maybe right. even pick up a little bit of work. It was a very interesting atmosphere. I mean, there was a lot of strange personalities up there and people visiting. A great sitcom could have been created out of that place. (laughs) That would be fun. So tell us about phasing out of continuity and entering Marvel. Around what year was that? 
Well, actually, it took a bit longer than that because I got into doing storyboards mostly for my living. That's something else mm -hmm. that continuity uh, mm -hmm. uh, introduced me to. And I was able to make a lot more money drawing storyboards for oh, cool. than uh -huh. doing comics. I could pay, pay the same amount for drawing a single frame of a storyboard as they would for penciling a full page comics and the, uh -huh. the storyboard had to you know could be very loose whereas the comic stuff had to be very tight so i ended up doing that most of the time i, I ended up going on staff for a couple of years at a interpublic company at the time called marshak that i think got absorbed by mccann erickson at some point but i always drew comics when i should have been sleeping and on weekends uh -huh. and including some stuff for dc i worked with for Paul Levitz on adventure comics for a while, I did some Aqualad stuff and some Nightwing and Flamebird stuff. And then I created a new character called Cobalt and plotted and drew three episodes for that before the implosion killed that project. The DC said, implosion of 78. Okay. Yeah. It never got, uh, never got published. Uh, and then it was sort of a uh, spinoff of um, the Goodwin Simonson Manhunter universe part of the dc universe oh cool uh-huh and then um i would occasionally do bits and pieces of work for marvel and then archie goodwin at that point was overseeing epic illustrated magazine and mm -hmm. i sold him a few short pieces and then i sold him my first real creator own creation called last of the dragons which mm -hmm. was uh, serialized initially in epic illustrated and that was with danny o'neill and that was 1982 uh yeah that's when it started and it ran through 83 yeah uh -huh. uh, okay. I think it was six installments. Um, that one kind of spoiled me because I just came up with this idea, started drawing it, potted it out, and I showed my drawings to Terry Austin at Continuity, and Terry goes, that looks great. I'd, I'd be interested in thinking that. At that mm -hmm. point, Terry had become like one of the hottest thinkers in the business. Mm -hmm. And so I take it up to Marvel, and I show it to Archie Good, and I say, um, Archie, I'm working on this thing. Here it is. Here's what it's about. Is this something you'd be interested in Epic Illustrating? He goes, yeah, I like that. It's great. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, I'm not really confident with my scripting yet. Is there any chance you'd want to script it? And he kind of smiled and he shook his head. No, you should find someone else to script it. So I walk outside and there's Denny O'Neill. I say, Denny, would you be interested in working on this? And he looked at it and he goes, yeah, I like this. Do that. So I needed a color. So I walk in the bullpen. There's Marie Severin. I go, hi, Marie. Check wow. this out. Is this something you'd be interested in? She goes, yeah. Then I run into Jim Novak. I need a letter. So I just thought that's the way things naturally happen. Everything <laughs> fell that easy. It's like I got so spoiled that when things didn't happen like that in the future, it was, it was very frustrating. Hmm. Uh, but one of the best compliments I ever got was from Archie about halfway through the series. I'd, I'd deliver each chapter up to him. And he was looking through uh, either chapter three or four when I delivered it. And he kind of shook his head and he looked up at me and says, you know, I should, I should have scripted this. He was sorry that he hadn't taken on the job. And I just felt extremely flattered to get that out of someone of Archie's stature. Wow. Can you talk about Archie a little bit? Because everybody does. And they all have sort of, I, I've yet to hear a bad story about him. But what it was, was your experience? It would be, it, it'd be very hard to find a bad story about Archie. <laughs> he was probably the most, when he was around, he was the most universally admired and liked professional in the comics business, I think. Everybody knew he was smart as a whip. He was extremely talented. He could write rings around most everybody, and he was a great editor, too. He'd have great insights, and he was also a very good visual storyteller. He would occasionally do layouts for the stories that the artists would draw based on his work. It was kind of a bit of a cartoony style. Remember those cartoons he used to do on the inside sure. covers of the, yeah, the epic comics? But he was very good at visual storytelling as well. So yeah, and I think when those, he wrote his scripts, he always had the visual aspect in mind. That's what he was kind of known for, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, I think so. And I don't know if he did thumbnails for all of them, but he did for some of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, you know, he, you know, he was older than I was. And I kind of, you know, the next generation before me, and I kind of, you know, looked up to and revered him. Like I think most people did. But he was like, you know, so easygoing and to be around. He wasn't pompous or stuck up at all. He was the exact opposite. He was very approachable. He was also a hell of a practical joker. He would often put his body at risk by doing these amazing pratfalls downstairs and all that on purpose to get a laugh out of people. Oh, really? Uh, wow. And there was one time when some Marvel executives on the 11th floor were deciding that some people were coming in too late. And Archie never came in super early, but you know it's hard to think of anybody who worked harder than Archie. 
So I think it was supposed to be like, you had to be in by 9.30 and the carrot was like, if you came in by 9.30, there'd be bagels or something like this. But if you didn't, you know, you'd be in trouble or whatever. So everybody knowing that Archie often didn't come in until after 10, was like, you know, worried about, you know, what was going to happen. And so they set up the place where you had the bagels and all that, not not too far outside of Archie's office. And so we're all sitting there and eating bagels and all that and watching the clock. And a little bit after 10, the, uh, you know, Archie hasn't shown up yet and everybody's worried what's going to happen. And the door opens and Archie comes out in his pajamas and stretches. And uh, <laughs> everybody starts howling with laughter. He got in super early that day just to pull that joke off. Um, that's fun. That's the kind of stuff he'd do. Yeah. Uh, but so, just, a, just, just a great guy. Yeah, that's great. So you worked on the Epic Illustrated Last of the Dragons. How did that transition into joining Marvel's editorial staff in 1983? Well, one of the things that was happening simultaneously with getting some of this work was that there was a great amount of social interactivity in the comics professional field at that time in New York. Neil Adams would have these First Friday parties at his apartment where on the first Friday of every month, any professional could come over to his place for a party and everybody got to know each other there from all the companies, including at that time, Archie Comics was still in in the area. And then during the warmer weather months, every Sunday in Central Park, there was an all day long comics industry volleyball game that was going on that you know, people from all over came in to play those things. I, I, we'd often play for 10 hours straight. It was great. And I got to know a lot of people there, including Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time at Marvel. Mm-hmm. And um, It must have been a great volleyball player. I mean, just from the... Well, he was very intimidating. And <laughs> I, I think one of the things that might have been... Uh, I might be just projecting this, but one of the things that kind of impressed him was that, you know, most people, when he was jumping up in the front line to spike, they would like you know, try and dig an air raid shelter or something. Uh, they want to know part of that, but I'd go up there and try and block it. And uh, a few times when the, it was my turn to spike it and he was facing me, I'd go up like I was going to bash it and just slightly tap it. So it rolled down the other side of the net. So I, I think he thought that was pretty clever, but I couldn't pull that trick too many times. <laughs> right. That'd be great. But uh, he, um, he, uh, Al Milgram in, in early 83, Al Milgram was planning to leave the editorial staff and go freelance. And Shooter didn't feel any of the current crop of assistants were quite ready to promote. So he was asking around other professionals to see if they could recommend somebody to pull in from the outside. And he went out to dinner one night with Bill Sienkiewicz, who I'd been friends with for a couple of years. And I'd never even thought about being an editor before and certainly hadn't discussed anything like that with Bill, but Bill popped my name into the hat. And what little work Shooter had seen of mine, he'd been impressed with because he knew I liked, uh, you know, good, clear, compelling visual storytelling. I didn't, I didn't like confusing the reader. I liked enlightening the reader. Um, mm-hmm. And he also knew that, you know, if I was given solid feedback on something, that I was more than happy to to make the work better by changing it. Uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't a prima donna saying it's you know my way or the highway about everything. Right. And so I got a call from Shooter out of the blue, and I decided to to go for it. And I ended up beginning at the start, pretty much of 1983, being on the editorial staff. And Milgram fortunately stayed on for another week while I was there to help me get my feet under me. And I was also fortunate to inherit his assistant editor at the time, Ann Nascente, who um, knew how that office was running. So I basically took over all the titles Alan was doing at the time, with the exception of Marvel Fanfare, which he kept editing on a freelance basis out of my office. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. So then you got along with Shooter, it sounds like, in the early 80s. Yeah, in the early 80s. Like before I got on staff, too. I mean, you know, whenever I met him in social you know, settings and all that, we got along just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got to Marvel, we generally got along pretty well. There was uh, one strange major incident where uh, we did not get along, but I managed to, uh, you know, kind of put that, lock that in the back closet somewhere and just forge forward uh, until things right. started getting more nuts in the in the, the latter part of his reign. But uh, I, uh, one of the things that kind of struck me was that I would occasionally be talking to some of the other editors and they'd you know, really have problems with Shooter. And mm-hmm. at that point, I'd had no problems with him. 
And I couldn't figure out why until a while later, I, I realized that those people who had started out at Marvel when Shooter was there that you know started out as interns and maybe became assistant editors and eventually became editors and so on. In his mind, he seemed to see them as whatever they came in on as that intern or assistant editor. Oh, and okay. it didn't matter how long they'd been there or how much they'd accomplished. He still saw them as this, you know, kind of clueless wonder that he had to, to mold and guide. Uh-huh. Whereas people that had had success outside of Marvel, like when he hired Milgram and Hama and Louise Simonson from, you know, other publishers or Denny and obviously Archie, they, he saw them more as peers and, he, since I'd been working at an ad agency uh, before he hired me, he, for some reason, he put me in that category of someone who had had success elsewhere, and therefore, uh, he saw them more as a peer. And huh. if he had the same issue he needed to talk to about with me or somebody else he'd hired from outside, he'd talk to them more like peer to peer having a discussion about a point of contention. Whereas if it was with one of the people that had been raised in house, he was basically browbeating them. And wow. I, didn't, I didn't really realize that or find that out till later. So that's, that was uh, an interesting thing to discover about this guy's personality. That's that he, interesting. He treated yeah, that's people really insightful. I had not heard that before. So basically he would kind of go more Weisinger on them in a way. I guess. I don't know. I mean, Weisinger sounds like, you know, he was shooter cubed, but uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Jim Jim was a strange one. Uh, Neil Adams and Jim Shooter are both the most complex and perplexing personalities I encountered in the comics business. They've both done tremendous things that are, are great and good and generous, and they've both done things that are the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And I, for the life of me, I can't figure out the, the rhyme or reason about what they do when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are kind of like alpha male types who understand storytelling, but then come with a lot of polarizing things. Yeah, they're they're very polarizing figures in a lot of ways, but there's also a lot of us that have seen both sides of them and mm-hmm. just can't figure out what tips the scales or which way they're going to react about something sometime. Yeah. But I'm sure in their minds they've got it all sorted out and everything makes perfect logical sense, but for the rest <laughs> of us, rest of us mere models it can be confusing. Yeah, it's still confusing for us, yeah. So, you know, going to your editing, you actually started out real strong. You edited uh, FF Annual 17, Fantastic Four 258. These are John Byrne Fantastic Four issues. How was editing John Byrne? Well, I didn't do a lot of actual editing on him because both of those, I think, had been started under Al's reign, and I just kind of took them over in the midst of production. Uh And I always got along just fine with John, but I could see that there was the potential for some issues down the road because I saw what he was turning in for the next batch of plots. And he liked just basically turning in one or two sentences for each issue. Uh-huh. And back then, what Marvel would do is they would pay a third of the writing rate for the plot and two thirds for when the final script came in because almost everybody worked the Marvel method back then, which meant the artists worked from a plot and then the, the finished pencils went to the writer to do the final script based on the mm-hmm. pencil. Mm-hmm. So I was a little concerned that I felt that I, I was going to have to talk to John about getting more out of it, particularly since I think he has a you know brilliant story mind, but occasionally mm-hmm. some of the stories, the endings felt unsatisfying. They had these deus ex machina things. If I remember right, I might not be remembering right, but that, that FF annual, it's like it had to do with the, the Cree and Cree milk from pre-cattle or, uh, you know, some strange, <laughs> yeah. interesting thing. But, uh, and in the end, it all got fixed because Reed came up with some spray and sprayed everything. And I just felt that was so um, right. disappointing. So I felt yeah, that... Yeah, a lot it, of his endings are, are kind of like that, actually. That's interesting. <laughs> well, I, I never, the impression I never I thought got, about that. The impression I got was that he comes up with these really interesting concepts and figures, you know, he's going to write them and, and then you know, they'll kind of write themselves and they'll come up to an ending. And sometimes that works for some people and sometimes it doesn't. You end up with sort of a, you know, things kind of fizzle out or you have to come up some deus ex machina thing to to try and pull it all together. And, you know, sometimes he was just so spot on. This this stuff was brilliant. And other times it kind of fell flat at the end. And I I wanted to try and keep that more consistent. So I was uh, gearing up to try and talk to him about writing more substantial plots. Uh, that had the ending figured out before he started diving into them. 
And I knew that that there was a good chance that was not going to go over well, and we were going to end up uh, having disagreements on that. But then Shooter said that he was up for you know expanding the line and trying new things, and I'd had a whole bunch of stuff that um, I'd been thinking about doing. And another new, relatively new editor up there, Bob Benyansky, needed some titles to fill out his roster. So I kind of gave up the FF and the thing, that little FF franchise, um, uh, to Bob in order to get space to do my the new projects I wanted to do. Also, Louis Simonson had pitched Power Pack to me, and right. I wanted to edit that as well. But I had ideas for um, Alien Legion, Shadow Masters, Amazing High Adventure, and, and some other things, Spellbound. And also, initially, I was going to think I was going to edit Longshot and Ascentia had come up with the basic concept for that, and I teamed her up with Art Adams. So I discovered my first day on the job in the, in the pile of unanswered submissions. Right. Uh, yeah, you, you discovered a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the, the big pluses of that job was discovering and mentoring a lot of the talent that went on to have uh, great careers, and it's very gratifying. So but, you, um, you also edited Defenders, Hulk, mm-hmm. Doctor Strange, Alpha Flight, Moon Knight, and you even inked every now and then. I saw you inked Moon Knight at some point, too. So yeah, that was, what, that was before I was editing, though. When you were editing, you technically weren't supposed to do any of the creative work unless it was part of you know your editorial duties so as you couldn't really freelance the work that you were editing it, it was that was the way we kept things balanced properly mm-hmm, i see so that inking of moonlight was before officially yeah. being an editor yeah that was being that was when denny i think was editing the title okay i uh, gotcha i got to ink some uh, kevin nolan pencils there and i learned a lot doing that jeez that's boy he's exciting. great yeah in fact when i started editing i don't know if you uh, noticed but um Kevin ended up doing a lot of my covers. I'd often do these for my covers. I'd do these quick layouts and give them to the artist to do the finished work. And if you ever looked at Kevin's old blog site, he's got a few of the the, the scribbles I sent him, and he shows oh, cool. the stages of what he uh, he turned them out into. So it was great seeing me send off these scribbles and have these amazing pieces <laughs> of work come back in. And it was he at one point too. He told me that he decided he wanted to not draw anymore. He just wanted to letter. Mm-hmm. And I told him he was nuts, but that I, as long as he was being nuts, I'd give him as much lettering as I could. So he ended up redesigning uh, and redesigning a number of my logos. He designed oh, cool. the, the original Punisher miniseries logo, mm-hmm. Rocket Raccoon, Solomon Kane. Mm-hmm. When we did, oh, the, when we relaunched Doctor Strange and before mm-hmm. that, the Strange Tales one, but. So he did, I, I tried to keep him as busy as I could no matter what, but then thankfully he saw the light of day and started drawing again. Started drawing again. Yeah. Sometimes people need a break from certain things. So then you edited the Rocket, the first Rocket Raccoon miniseries. How do you feel Rocket Raccoon turned out in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies? Pretty well. I, I tell people kind of only half jokingly that it took 30 years to be vindicated for, you know, <laughs> watching that first miniseries because... <laughs> for being involved uh, I, in the first I, one, yeah. Yeah, when I proposed it, a lot of the other editors just laugh they say what that's not gonna work mm-hmm. uh, and that was also mike mignola's first series yeah. as a penciler and up to that point i think he penciled uh, one or two short jobs for milgram and fanfare mm-hmm. uh, uh submariner stuff and he'd send in when he was sending in his inks he'd often have these neat little drawings he'd do on the backs of the pages of you know, weird little characters and monsters and, and stuff. And Bill Mantlow and I would look at these things and just think, you know, that's great. I wish there was a, an outlet for this kind of stuff here. And Mantlow proposed doing a, a Rocket Raccoon miniseries. Mantlow was one of the, the co-creators of that property. And so we asked Mike to, to pencil it. So that was his first uh, Marvel series as a penciler. And mm-hmm. after that, since he didn't really care to draw humans, superheroes that much, I needed a new artist on the Hulk, so I put him on the Hulk, and he was there for quite a while. Oh, wow. So then, as far as Mike Mignola being one of the people that you discovered and mentored, as well as Arthur Adams, also Wills Portacio, Jim Lee, John Bogdanovi, quite a lot of names. So Larry Stroman. Larry Stroman. Yeah. Steve Scrooge, Sal Valuto, June Brigman, right? These are all people. Yeah, though so there's a few of them there where I didn't technically discover them. Like uh, June, we, I, Weezy introduced me to June's work, and I just thought I see. it was amazing. And then um, 
Mike had been doing inking and he penciled one or two jobs for Milgram. So I can't really take credit for, for that, but I did pretty much, uh, I think mentor him when he came on board as a full-time penciler. Oh, how cool. And then at the same time, working with people like Bill Sienkiewicz and like you already mentioned, Terry Austin. So there's just a lot of creativity going on in the middle 80s. At the time, did it feel like all these names were going to be big at some point? You know, it's strange. When you're in the midst of it, it's like the norm. And Mm -hmm. part of you realizes, you know, this is fabulous. This is great. You know, I get to make my living, you know, doing all this stuff and with all these great people and having a blast. And there's a part of you that, you know, that's just the everyday norm. So it isn't until it goes away that it really hits you what a you know an amazing period of time that was. Um, I'd say during my 13 years on staff at Marvel from 83 to 96, at least uh, 10 of those 13 years were the best professional work experience on staff I've ever had anywhere. The last year and a half of Shooter's Reign was a nightmare. And then my last year and a half or so there when the Ron Perlman people had taken over Marvel and were busy driving it into bankruptcy twice. That was a huge nightmare. Right. But the rest of that time, it was great. Uh, All of us up there loved what we were doing. Most of us got along really well, and in fact, so well that we were often doing social things together uh, out of the office. And we, you know, we generally, you know, were rooting for each other, trying to help each other out. There wasn't like a lot of the inter-office and fighting that there seemed to be occasionally at DC with some of the older editors up there, although a little of that ended up coming to Marvel eventually. You got to work with Didco too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Talk about that for a minute. I first met Steve, believe it or not, despite his reputation, I first met Steve at a party. During those Neil Adams' first Friday parties, he at some point, I think in 1976, managed to talk Didco into coming to one of them. And so I walk in and there's Ditko sitting on the sofa by himself and everybody else seems to be too scared to go up and talk to the guy. And Starlin happened to be there and Starlin had known Ditko for a long time when, when Jim was a fan and would come to New York. He's one of those guys that would call up Ditko and Ditko would have him over and they'd, they'd talk and shoot the breeze. Oh, really? So, yeah. That's so, cool. so Starlin, Starlin's one of those guys, if you, you can see it in his work, he's like the perfect amalgam between Kirby and Ditko. Yeah. He's like he's like the love child of Kirby and Ditko. Yeah, that, that doesn't <laughs> and, make sense. Yeah. So he takes me over there and 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 he says, Steve, this is Carl. He thinks you're God. And then he Starlin walks away. And so I'm sitting there going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know what the hell to say after that. And because a that's embarrassing on its own, but b if you know anything about Ditko's and Randian objectivist uh, lookout. You know, he thinks all religion is bunk and opiate for the masses. So to be compared to a God, is like a double insult. Um, (laughs) So I managed to, you know, to talk a bit to him and get to to know him a little bit. But he didn't last long at that party. He he didn't last long. He was he was gone before too long. But I would occasionally run into him here and there. And then when I was on staff at Marvel for a while, Ditko came back to work at Marvel. And the conditions were that he would not work on any of the characters he was more closely associated with basically Spider-Man and Doctor Strange from his initial run at Marvel. Mm -hmm. And that he uh, also had gotten more entrenched in his view that heroes should be heroes and shouldn't have any real faults, uh, which which of course is at the core of Marvel's whole success was fallible heroes. So one time uh, when I was editing uh, one of the magazines I launched was uh, a self-parody book that was sort of reincarnation of uh, Not Brandeck called What the... Yeah, And I asked Steve, you know, I know you like doing, you know, humor work sometimes. Would you like to do a piece for our, our self-parody magazine? And he goes, yes, but only if it just parodies villains. I don't parody heroes. So <laughs> I, I talked to, to Mark Grunewald about this and Mark said, I'll write something. I'll write something. So yeah. he, he wrote basically a parody of kind of sort of Secret Wars. And I think he was so worried about getting backlash from Shooter about parodying Secret Wars that he used the pseudonym Gwyn Dibley, which if you know your Monty Python history, that was one of the names Monty <laughs> Python considered using before they settled on Monty Python was Gwyn mm. Dibley. So then I got, Ditko did it, and I got Severin Inc., and it was great. Oh, that's but, awesome. Uh, and then we did a few other things here and there, but I, I also, when I became executive editor, uh, one of the things I ever saw was a relaunch of uh, Phantom, as Phantom 2040 or something like that, right. 2020. Uh-huh. And Ditko was doing the layouts. And I always liked the, the inkers over Ditko who could 
retain Ditko while also making it more contemporary. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the best of those was Craig Russell, Craig on Ron. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. And, and in a totally different way, in a different direction, I thought uh, Reinhold, Bill Reinhold would be perfect. And he did a fabulous job over Ditko on, on Phantom 2040. Again, keeping Ditko while totally updating and modernizing him in a very different way than Craig Russell did. I always wanted to, I'd, I'd considered at one point, and I never got around to it, seeing what Kevin Nolan would do over Ditko. He did it. He, yeah, he did I, it. there was a short DC thing, right? Yeah, the, the uh, Spectre issue, uh, or a Spectre short story okay. that he did. It was interesting. It was it was really kind of heavy. I mean, there, you, but you'd still get a little bit of Ditko from it. But it was yeah. it was beautiful looking. Yeah, that was the one thing I'd be worried about because Kevin t- seems to overwhelm almost anybody he inks. But um, there was actually a project we never got off the ground at Marvel that I, I'm not sure if Fabian Nicieza came up with the idea or if he was going to write it, but it was basically in that, that second Spider-Man annual, the, the wedding of Reed and Sue, you see glimpses of battles between various you know superheroes and villains all over New York, but you never really got to look in to see what each of those things was about. So mm-hmm. the idea of the series would be uh, each issue would concentrate on one of those battles and what went on, and they would each be penciled by a then-living member of Marvel's uh, Silver Age bullpen and inked by a more contemporary inker. So at that time, still alive were the Bissema brothers, Ditko. Kirby was gone by then, unfortunately. But Don Heck was still around, I think. You know, there were some others that were, you know, more loosely associated, I think, like George Tuska and so on. But the idea was to match them up each with a contemporary inker. And for Ditko, I was I was playing with the idea of either Scott Williams or Kevin Nolan, but uh, unfortunately, we never pulled that one off. Now, did you ever late. see? Did you ever see Steve Leola's inks on Ditko? He did it. It was the backup for uh, in uh, Eclipse's uh, Coyote. Oh, did, yeah, Dijin something. Like yeah, that. The yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, those, yeah, Steve, those were nice. Steve's another, Steve's another one who you know has great admiration for Ditko, and you know will always try and you know keep the flavor. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very good. Both Steves are very good on that case. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Carl. This has been another episode of the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Stay tuned next time for part two of the Carl Potts interview. Cheers. Cheers.